0: Lord, we, uh, we are thankful for Jesus, and we praise you for Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to grow in our understanding and love of Jesus. And through him, our understanding and love for you. Father, uh, show us uh, from your word this morning, Jesus, our Savior, give us understanding from your word on this uh, this uh, unusual passage, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would, through this, strengthen your church and cause us to uh, find hope in the midst of a world of sin and death. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me uh, this morning to Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. Not sure if the keynote will work today, but we'll see. Oh, well. This past week, as uh, many of you know in our congregation, um, one of our beloved brothers in the Lord, um, sons of one of our dear families, has gone to be with glory with the Lord. I'm sure many of you members who, who uh, heard the news were were shocked and were greatly overcome with sorrow as we, uh, we mourn the loss of our brother. And though we know that the scriptures promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, um, the the grief of of loss is still great. And we pray for. Uh, our brother Andrew and his, I'm brother Andrew's family, and we continue to uphold them in our prayers, but we also just pray for ourselves uh, for we, uh, we too uh, mourn along and weep along with those who weep. We are soberly reminded because of this, and especially as we come to this passage, that we walk and live in a world of sin and death ever since the fall genesis 3 everyone born of adam must die it is inevitable because we are all born with the curse of sin and so we live in though we in our world today we try not to often think much about death, we we hide death, we make death something, uh, sometimes even uh, uh, something that's pleasant, but it, we, when we look to the scriptures, we cannot get around the fact that death is something that is, in fact, very much, in a sense, unnatural, it's not what God intended for mankind when he made us. But yet it exists among us because of sin. And yet, as we live in this world, as this this world, as we live our lives, and we experience the, the joys of, of living in this world, <coughs> we truly do live, and we all inevitably face death. And it's especially painful when it's uh, when it's our loved ones especially painful uh, when it's our church family. uh, And it will be a great trial and challenge when it is our own that we face. Though this is the reality of living in this world for God's people, there is hope in the world of sin and death. There is hope in the face of death. And our passage today gives hope to the nation of Israel as they faced death in the camp of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. And as we look to God's provision for them, for, to give them hope, I hope that this passage will, as it is designed, to point us to our own hope that we have in God's provision for us. Israel, as you recall, just as a bit of review, was condemned to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that whole first generation of Israel died. Everyone 20 years old and upward would die over that period of 40 years. Death surrounded them. Not only did death was a part of was their judgment, But we saw in the recent chapters that in light of Korah's rebellion, the wrath of God was also uh, present in their life whenever they would sin. And nearly 15,000 Israelites died for their rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. And out of fear, the people cried out to Moses. They cried out, we're going to die. Is there any hope? And as we began looking last week in Uh, In chapter 18, we learn that God answers with yes, there is hope. God had provided the priests and Levites as a a hope for them, for it would be through the priests and Levites that they would be these mediators between God and the people. They would be the ones who would bear the guilt to the people as they brought their offerings and their sacrifices to the Lord. In today's chapter, chapter 19, is really a continuation of God's answer. But God provides a, a means of purification from the ceremonial defilement of death that pervaded the community. It is this uh, chapter is sometimes called the the law of the or ordinance of the red heifer. It's a it's a strange kind of title if you're not familiar with it. Uh, most of us probably are. Maybe hearing this for the first time with this ordinance of the red heifer. Even if you've read it, uh, the Bible through, you, you might just read through this and kind of think, yeah, it's another offering, another sacrifice, and move on. Scripture calls it the the water for impurity. It is an admittedly an unusual and uh, ritual. It's it's different from the other sacrificial rituals that Israel was called to make. However, in this ritual, we will find foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the ultimate victor of death. And He is our hope. We're going to look at this passage today. It's 22 verses, 22 verses, and it divides into two sections, two passages, and they're basically two sets of instructions. Two instructions we're going to look at today about the water for impurity, Two instructions about the water for impurity that give hope to God's people, that give hope to God's people in the midst of a world of sin and death. So let me give that one more time because we don't have our keynote. Two instructions about the water for impurity that give hope to God's people in the midst of a world of sin and death. And so uh, hopefully uh, we will find hope too as a result of studying this passage. First, the first set of instructions about the water for impurity is in verses 1 to 10. And that is the preparation, the preparation of the water for impurity. The preparation for the water of impurity. Verses 1 to 2, and, uh, and we'll just read the scripture as we move along, introduces the law for us, the ordinance for us. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law, which the Lord has commanded, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, that they bring you an unblemished red heifer, in which there is, when which is no defect, on, and on which a yoke has never been placed. So God returns here, you'll notice, to speaking to Moses and Aaron as his chosen leaders of Israel. Moses is his chosen prophet, Aaron is his chosen priest. He had just recently in the previous chapters affirmed their authority as his chosen leaders over the whole nation. This is chapter 16 to 18. And so now the Lord returns to speaking to Israel through these two leaders who would then communicate God's word to others. They are given instructions that they are to pass on to the sons of Israel. And this instruction involves basically bringing an unblemished red heifer to Moses and Aaron. Um, you just won't find that phrase anywhere else in the Bible, an unblemished red heifer. That's why it's called the Ordinance of the Red Heifer Law, the Red red Heifer. Now, um, a heifer, uh, you know, I had to look all this up because I don't know, I'm not a farm guy. I didn't grow up on a farm. I said, what's a heifer? I had to go look that up, and I found out, oh, yeah, just basic basic, um, animal biology, I guess. (laughs) But uh, I've learned, remember, that we think of cows, uh, when you think of cows i 've sometimes thought that the cows could be male and female, but cows actually are females, female bovine creatures, and the males are called bulls, apparently now the young, young female cows are called heifers, so when you see a heifer, it implies that it 's that it's going to be young and it implies it 's going to be a female. Cow, and, which is a cow, okay, a, a young female cow. All right, so uh, that was very interesting, I uh, thought. So, but this is to be, uh, if you know, cows. They come in all sorts of colors. They come in black and white, you know. They, but they also come in shades of a shade of, of brown, and, brown or red, reddish brown. And there is that shade that we see. Oh, <laughs> oh it looks good on my computer, at least. <clears throat> Anyways, that this is a there's a red, uh, red heifer that's needed here. Now, bulls, in contrast to a cow or, or a heifer in this case, uh, were common in the sacrificial system of Israel. Bulls are common, so males male uh, animals were common, but uh, a female uh, a heifer was a, a bit more uncommon not a, not ever done, but unusual, uh, of course, like all sacrifices, this animal, this red heifer, had to be uh, unblemished, had to be perfect, it had to be without any defect and it was also, furthermore, it had to be something that had never been used and never had a yoke put on it. <clears throat> so, this animal, um, uh, th- this animal, uh, stood out from other animals that may be offered. The only time uh, in the scriptures that a, a heifer is uh, mentioned prior to Numbers, the only other time, one other time, where it's mentioned prior to this. Uh, and it's in a sacrificial kind of context, is back in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 19, when Abraham was instructed to bring, uh, among other animals, a three-year-old heifer. And he was to cut that heifer in half, lay them on, the, uh, on in a row, and then in that evening, God would walk through those, uh, those, uh, those animals that were cut in half as a way to ratify the Abrahamic covenant. And that's a pretty significant covenant. So this animal, this heifer, the fact that a heifer is asked to be brought is, makes it already very significant. It makes it unique. That its color is actually mentioned. You never, you think about it, you never really uh, learn about what color do the, the, the sheep or, or, the, or the bulls or what color do the, the, the turtle doves need to be. But this sacrifice, this animal, it's, actually, the, its color is actually mentioned. It has to be red. The word actually means reddish, a reddish-brown reddish color. So that marked it as being unique. Uh, The significance of this, uh, most likely, as we will see in a little bit, it's required to be red because it would be symbolic of the color of blood as part of the sacrifice. So what is Israel to do with this red heifer? Let's read on in verses 3 to 6. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar, the priest, shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. So this red heifer is given to Eleazar the priest. Now Eleazar, you remember, uh, is the son of Aaron. So it's interesting. Aaron's still around, but Eliezer is is asked to to conduct this. The inclusion of Eliezer in this ritual is a, just a, another way of further affirming the priestly lineage of Aaron, of Aaron and his sons and his family. So, uh, but Eliezer, and then presumably, if as this. Uh, Right gets carried out throughout the generations uh, of wandering, and the Israelite. It would be other priests who would come and do the same. Likewise, but Eliezer is to uh, take this heifer, and he's to take it outside the camp. You know, it's, he takes it outside the camp where the animal is then to be slaughtered. And there, in that phrasing, at least one other priest or, or Levite is implied here, so there's an assistant to help. Because that other assistant slaughters the animal while Eliezer is present, so Eleazar is not doing the, the sacrificing. So we notice a couple of things that are that again further make this this law of the red heifer uh, unusual or stand out. First of all, the location of the sacrifice is unusual. Normally, sacrifices were brought where. To the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle. That's why there's an altar in the tent of meeting. That's why they have the altar. That's why they have the bronze laver for the washing of their hands. It's this is where, and that's that's where God's presence was. But this animal is unique in that it's brought outside the camp. Where it's brought outside the camp, outside, and there is it is slaughtered. Again, God's word is is not without meaning. Everything that God says has a purpose, and all these details are significant. As with and we, as we've been going through, particularly the book of Numbers, and learning about the rituals that we see here within, the sacrificial, the ceremonies, we, rem- we remember that all these rituals are given by God for, as a visual les- lesson to Israel. They, <clears throat> they are a visual picture uh, to a nation who didn't have uh, necessarily their own copies of the written word. These rites in which they were to teach them spiritual truths, even as... In a, way, in a sense, like baptism and communion is a visual lesson for us today. So, the fact that this animal is taken outside the camp to be slaughtered should have, would have clued in Israel that there's something unique about this animal. The, in the book of Numbers, uh, being outside the camp is significant. In Numbers chapter 5, the Lord had instructed to send outside the camp all those basically who were defiled in any way, who were ceremonially unclean, whether it was leprosy or some kind of skin disease, whether they had touched someone who was dead or they had someone who died in their home or other uh, kind of means of uh, any uh, discharge of the body. Any of these things would have made someone uh, ceremonially unclean and defiled and therefore they would have had to be outside the camp of Israel. They could not remain inside the camp. And they were there on the outside of the camp. They would remain until the appropriate time had passed and the appropriate sacrifice could be offered so that to purify the individual and they could come back into the camp and live among God's people, but primarily to live before the presence of the Lord who was dwelling in their midst. The red heifer would basically be, is basically being treated like something that is defiled and therefore had to be brought outside to be slaughtered. Eliezer then would take some of the blood of its blood, and it, he would sprinkle it toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Seven is, is significant too; it's the Hebrew number for completeness, as, is, uh, as, uh, as what most all many scholars and commentators say. And this action, uh, this sprinkling of uh, the blood toward the tent of meeting, is also something that's a similar imagery for most Israelites to be aware of, to be mindful of. Uh, a similar action was was done by priests whenever they were to offer sin offerings for themselves or for the people. We see this mentioned in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6 and 17. It's also mentioned, this practice of sprinkling blood seven times, is mentioned on the day, uh, something that the high priest would have to do on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. So it was, it was a common or... Or at least, uh, not an uncommon part of sacrifices that needed to be offered for sin offering and for covering of sin, that it would be sprinkled. Usually, it would be sprinkled toward the on the altar or sprinkled uh, before the veil. But here, because it's the animal sacrificed outside the tent, it would just be sprinkled toward the tent of meeting, toward where the Lord got where the Lord was. And so, that that the fact that it was being in a similar way is being sprinkled toward the tent of meeting indicates that this is this animal that's being killed. And it is a form of offering to the Lord. It's a form of offering to the Lord. It's a sacrifice. And once offered, once after being sprinkled, we read in this section that the whole heifer, the whole young red heifer, all of it, including most significantly its blood, but all of it, its intestines and everything within, all of it is burned up completely, Now, usually, remember, when animals are brought to sacrifice on the altar, where does the blood go? The blood goes is usually poured out, sprinkled on the altar. But in this unique case, the blood is not poured out in any way. When the animal is killed, the whole animal, the whole red heifer, is burned up along with its blood. In addition... We see that not only is the whole red heifer burned along with his blood, but cedarwood, hyssop, scarlet material is also cast along together with it to be burned. These additional elements, not only are they also shades of red, uh, similar color, so emphasizing the symbolism of blood, but these elements, cedarwood, hyssop, scarlet material, were also used in the purification rituals for lepers, in Leviticus 14. So this is something, these elements are for purification, as we're going to see. So this ritual stands out in three ways. It stands out for its, the fact that the, the animal's color is told. It's red. It's red because uh, later on, when it, we're going to find out that uh, it's going to be used uh, to symbolize, really, uh, blood. Uh, it's, it's unique for its location. It's sacrifice, it's killed outside the camp. And thirdly, we see it's significant because it's the totality of the sacrifice. It's not just the animal that's burned, it's the whole animal along with its blood. It's a total sacrifice to the Lord. But there's a fourth. It further stands out in the effect that this ritual has on the priest and those others who assist him in the sacrifice. And we see this in verses seven through ten. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it As water to remove impurity, it is purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening, and it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. You notice as we read here, not only the priest in verse 7, but the one who burns the heifer, both of them become unclean as they conduct this ceremony, presumably they begin ceremonially clean before the Lord, or holy before the Lord. But having conducted this ceremony, this rite, they become unclean for one day. But after washing their clothes, after bathing, then they can, they can enter back into the camp when evening arrived. Remember, in Jewish culture, evening begins the new day. So they were unclean for one day, as soon as they went through the appropriate rituals, when the evening arrived, they could then, were ceremonially clean, and they could go back into the camp. But for one day, they became defiled in this, interestingly, in this sacrifice, in this offering that is designed to make others clean. They become unclean, okay? Since the first two are unclean, a third helper a third assistant uh, or a second assistant a third person uh, whether a priest or a Levite is needed then to gather up the ashes of the red heifer that was burned all of it the ashes are then stored in a clean place still notice outside the camp in verse 9 God reveals the purpose for this ritual he tells them specifically you shall keep this basically this these ashes as water to remove impurity now these are ashes, so it's going, he's referring to what it's going to become. It's going to be the water to remove impurity. So water for impurity that's going to become, it's going to be used for that. But it is designed, its purpose is, it is purification from sin. Literally the word is, <clears throat> it is a sin offering. There's one, there's one word that's used for sin offering. It's used in uh, back in Leviticus. Chapter four of the word for sin offering, and that's the word that's used here. It's translated purification from sin. Sin in our New Test in our uh, in our NASB. It is a sin offering. That's a, that is uh, <clears throat> instructive for us as well. Sin offerings, you recall, in Leviticus one to seven, there's all those offerings, and there's two offerings that are kind of particularly that uh, uh, that. Uh, that are significant, they're all significant, but at least for this passage, is that there is something called a sin offering, and then there's something called a guilt offering. Now, when we think of sin offering, we think, oh, maybe because I sinned, and I did something wrong, and therefore i got to offer my sin offering. But sin offering, according to Leviticus 4, is primarily one of, and really, that's what, when we think of that, that's really what guilt offering is. When you commit a sin, you know you're guilty, you're guilty and you, you offer the guilt offering. But sin offering was something that was generally offered when you, it's for your sin, but it's when you unintentionally sin. You, you didn't int- intend to do it, but then somewhere along the way, you become aware that you've sinned, you become aware of God's law. So I violated one of God's law unintentionally, and then you would make a sin offering. Uh, so it was for, not for intentional sins, but made for in- unintentional sins, or oftentimes it was made as a, as a covering, uh, just in the general uh, conduct of the services of, of, of Israel, that it was a covering for one's sin nature in general. So this becomes a, a sin offering. It covers the sin nature of the people of Israel. It would be, it will be. Although the red heifer would be used to cleanse others from defilement of sin, its handling, we note, would defile those who were otherwise clean. And that's why we even see that at the end of this passage, that even the one who gathers the ashes, who puts it in a safe place to be kept for, for future use, he too becomes unclean for one day until he bathes and washes his clothes. And then in the evening, he also may enter, re-enter the camp. Verse 10 of this instruction said, gives, uh, uh, ends with this instruction that this would become a perpetual statute. It would be something that Israel would would continually observe. The availability of the ashes of the red heifer would be at hand for the purification of sin throughout Israel's history. Note, though, that this water for, for purification would be available not just for Israelites, but also for the sojourner, the alien who lives among them for the gentiles who wish to be among the uh, to be to live among the Israelites live among God's people want to strive to live according to God's laws the same God's law would apply equally to the sons of Israel as it would to the gentile who lived and dwelt among them and that's encouraging this uh fact that it's a perpetual uh, statute means that this uh this practice would not just be a, something you would do once in a while, like it would be like the, even the Day of Atonement offerings. This would be something that would be a continual practice. Why? Because Israel, would, over their 40 years of wilderness wandering, would continually need the water for purification because they would continually experience death in the wilderness. <clears throat> they would constantly become defiled and need cleansing. And God, for the period of their wanderings, as well as when they enter the promised land, provided for them the waters for impurity so that they could receive be purified from their ceremonial uncleanness. Now their need would be heightened by the presence of death among the people. And so... Even in this passage, the nation had just experienced the death of 15,000 people all at one time. There was probably a a very few tents, very few families that had not been impacted, become defiled by someone dying in their home. Because they had to bury these 15,000 people, so someone had to go get them and then handle them and prepare their bodies and then bury them. And among those, and countless numbers would have been defiled, or they would have came in contact even, to even pass by a grave would defile them. And so we're going to see that in verse eleven twenty two, God gives a second kind of set of instructions, further instructions really, but it shows in, in, that gives, uh, that helps Israel to find hope in, their, in the midst of a world of sin and death. And that is the application of the water for impurity, the application. But how does this... What is, so God gives them these ashes that they're stored, but how, how does it work? What do you do with it? Well, we find out in verses uh, in, in the verse 11 to 22. Verse 11, 13, as we look to the second point, state the general purpose for the waters from purity. So really up to this point, up to verse 9, you, the Israel God hadn't really not told them what, what, to, what it is for, what occasion it's for. It's just purification from sin, it says. But in 11 through 13, we see the more general explanation for why they will need this water for for impurity. Verse 11 to 13, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. The ashes of the red heifer, we are told, are necessary for the purification of the because of from from sin, because of the defilement of death that is prevalent among Israel, anyone who touches a corpse would be unclean for seven days. Remember, everyone twenty years and up in that first generation were going to die. And if you remember uh, the earlier chapters, when there was the numbering of Israel, the number of fighting men alone that were twenty years old and upward was six hundred thousand. Assuming that there was an equal, equivalent amount of women in, that were 20 years and older in Israel, we're talking about a nation of 1.2 million 20 years old and up. And that's not including, then you don't count the kids. So 1.2 million over these next 40 years were going to die in the wilderness. That's a lot of people. And every time someone died, there would be the possibility of defilement because of death. The camp of Israel would be constantly. Continually experiencing death, constantly, continually experience the the defilement of death. And anyone who touched a corpse for burial, for cleansing, for burial, burial, would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And being unclean, remember, when they're unclean, defiled, according to Numbers chapter 5, they have to live outside the camp during that period, for that period of seven days. But God did not leave them without a means for purification. For he gave them these waters for impur- purification here in this chapter. This water for impurity would have to be applied. We're, just, we're told generally, we're going to see the specifics a little bit later in the text. But it's going to be applied upon them on the third day and the seventh day. And it's going to again involve someone to apply it to them. As opposed to them just taking the water and applying it themselves. You know, But it's gonna, we'll see that. So the one, and in applying the water to impurity, the, this was a means for which Israel could be cleansed. And the one who doesn't apply the water would not be clean. And it was important, God says in this passage, verse 13, to be cleansed because the one who doesn't would, ent- would basically, when they re-enter the camp, that person would defile the tabernacle of the Lord. They would defile the presence of God. To go back in the camp, it's not only with the, being unclean, they could defile others, but ultimately they're defiling the tabernacle of the Lord, the pres- where the Lord was present among them. Because God is holy, 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 as we sung. And since he dwells among his people, his people need to be holy, lest they be judged under the wrath of God. So the reign defiled in the camp of Israel was to face a certain death, being cut off from Israel, There's a warning here. His uncleanness is still on him. But there is hope for the Israel because all one has to do is apply the water for impurity upon themselves. And it's, all, and it's available to them because God provided it. Now God further elaborates on the situations when the water for impurity are needed in 14 to 16. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes in the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, everyone who is in an open field touches one who has been slain with a sword, who has died unnaturally or a human bone or a grave, shall be unclean for seven days. So this is how significant this impact of, of death is on the camp. And If someone dies in your tent, if someone dies in your home, basically, everybody in the home is considered defiled for seven days. Even your open jars, your open vessels, if they weren't covered, they would be considered defiled. What's more, not only inside the home, but outside the home. When they're outside and the when they're in the open field, if you happen to come across the contact with the grave of someone who died, you became unclean. You touched the bone of, of, of some human being and you died. And, you're not, and you became defiled. So you see, death and defilement of death was unavoidable in the life of Israel. And from our point of view, one might think that it's a little bit unfair for God to declare someone unclean just because someone died in their home. But these ceremonial laws of uncleanness or cleanness are meant, along with much of the rest of the Mosaic law, to teach God's people about their sin. God's law wasn't meant, so this is how you can live holy lives. God's law was given to us so that we would learn how we couldn't really keep God's law and how we we would fall short and how we needed a provision for our forgiveness and for our salvation. And that's what this law does. These laws of defilement of death or death and the defilement that causes the need for purification is is a lesson to Israel for them of the reality of death and that death is a reflection of the curse of sin in their lives. Yes, it's not morally sinful to die or to have someone die. But death does exist because of the curse of sin. And all of us who are born with a sinful nature are condemned to die. So by associating death with defilement, God is teaching his people that death is the reminder of the presence of sin. Every time we experience death in our lives, it's a reminder to us, of the presence of sin in our world. This is not how our father's world was made. But this is what our father's world has become because of Adam's sin and our sin. This world experiences death. And death affects us all. Whether it's the death of loved ones or our own. But death when he comes into our life, reminds us all of our need for cleansing from sin. And God, once again, has provided it. In the remaining verses, we'll see how God's provision for the purification of defilement points us to his provision for the purification of our sin. Verse 17 and 19 give his specific instructions for how the waters for impurity are to be applied. 17 and 19, we read, Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take his sub and dip it in the water, and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there, and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening. So we see here the specific instructions, the application. The unclean person is somehow to take some of the ashes that were set aside from the burning of the red heifer. And it's to be mixed with flowing water in a vessel. And I can't help but think about it. Those of you, you, know, this it's like it's like instant coffee. You know, I like VIA coffee. You know, you, ever, you drink VIA coffee. You just put a little packet in there. You add the hot water, and bam, you got your nice brown coffee, full of all the nutrients, the good old caffeine that ought to be there. Uh, that is very right there. And so, in a similar way, this this these ashes of the red heifer, and that's why we see that the emphasis on the red now, right? Because this. It would be burned up, it would be ashes, but when you applied water to this living water, so flowing water, fresh water is the implication, with this mix of the ashes of the heifer, the water that's produced would be also a color of blood, right? It would look like what it was to meant to be, the blood that needed to be applied for the purification of sin. So once this water is for impurity is prepared, a clean person probably another priest or a Levite, would take a his, uh, some hyssop, dip it on the, in this water, and then sprinkle it on the tents, on the, for the furnishings in the tent, on the people that live in the tent. Everything, anything that was unclean would be sprinkled with this water, and on, this would happen on the third day and on the seventh day. Now, we're not told, again, why these days are mentioned, why the third day, why the seventh day. Uh, the seventh day being the day of perfection. Per- especially because that's the, that's the final day of the uh, cleanest. But why the third day? Why the third day? Well, I can't prove it to you, but uh, the third day reminds me of the day when Jesus rose from the grave, right? But that's, uh, there's a, there's, if we believe that God uh, foreshadows his son in the scriptures, that that's a possibility, so the unclean person that's sprinkled on the third day, on the seventh day, with the waters of, for the impurity that by, this, uh, by this priest or Levite, uh, would then become clean on that seventh day. They could re-enter the camp after washing in their clothes and bathing, and then they would go back in. Again, when, once again, we see in the following verses that this is such, it's such an easy process. It, it's, it's readily available to anyone. But there's a warning for failing to purify oneself in this way in verse 20 and following. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them, and he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until the evening. Note also here not only the warning that uh, <clears throat> that the one who does not apply the waters to themselves does not pur- pur- see purification they, they could wait seven days they'll still be unclean they need to receive and have applied to them the very ashes of the red heifer that was intended by God for the purification of their defilement they had to apply it. there's no other way this was the way For someone who thinks, well, you know, it's just a matter of time. Oh, it's just, you know, just making sure that if they were thinking of it for, if it was purely a a medical kind of thing, well, they just need to wait it out and make sure that they're not, you know, contagious, not really sick because of touching a dead person. Then, you know, after seven days, no symptoms. Okay, we're good. No, no. There's a ceremonial defilement here that needs to be purified. It has to be purified. And the one who does not wash remains in that state of defilement and risks their life should they re-enter the camp of Israel. Note, too, that the one who sprinkles it upon, the uh, the one who sprinkles upon the folks on uh, the people who are unclean, that person, because he is, uh, comes in contact with the water for impurity, he then becomes unclean. How profound is that? As he applies the waters to make others clean, he himself becomes unclean. Again, this is just... It just uh, it screams. Uh, it screams God's truth, and you're probably already there, but it, you know, wait, wait a little bit and we'll get there. But that, that individual is unclean for one day. After washing his clothes, bathing, he too may re enter the camp. As long as Israel would wander in the wilderness, they would encounter death and defilement. But the Lord had faithfully provided a way for the defilement to be purified, for them to be cleansed, the waters for impurity through the red heifer that would be offered, burned up, set aside outside the camp for whenever they would need to be, have it applied to them, cleansed so they could be cleansed and returned to the camp before the presence of the Lord. This would be true for that first generation and every future generation of Israel. Every generation of Israel, as they read these words, would have remembered God provides a way for us to be clean. We are defiled because of death and, of, and because of sin, But God provides a way for our defilement to be cleansed. God provides a way of hope for them to have continued fellowship with God, to continue to live among God, even in the midst of a world where they are under the curse of sin. And so let us jump to today. God continues to offer us hope today, does he not? These ritual services remind us of the Lord's provision for our own need of purification. For in this life, too, we encounter death. Death is a constant reminder of our sin nature, for the wages of sin is death. And we need to be purified from the defilement, not of death, but of sin. And as you might have already concluded, God provided... Purification for our sin through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The red heifer points to Jesus. He too, like the red heifer, was crucified outside the camp of Israel. Outside the gates of Jerusalem. He was not crucified in Jerusalem, but outside Jerusalem. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What's more, his death involved the shedding of his own blood. The shedding of his blood that needed to be applied to our lives. That's pointed to by the red color of the heifer. It's by His death, His blood is applied to our lives, and we that we who have believed upon Him are cleansed. For without the shedding of blood, there is there can be no forgiveness of sins. Furthermore, the priests and others who became unclean in applying the waters for, pur- for purification upon those who were unclean, they themselves were pointers to Jesus. In, in cleansing others, they became unclean. They were ultimate, these priests ultimately pointed to Jesus, the great high priest, who to himself would become unclean so that others may be clean. Saint Corinthians 5.21, he made, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the warning of the ritual is the warning for us today that the ashes of the red heifer were available, are available to all who are unclean, who wish to be cleansed. But they, the people of Israel needed to obey. They needed to take and obediently apply the waters for impurity upon themselves, upon them. And even then, when they applied the waters for impurity upon them and cleansed them, it only cleansed them ceremonially. It only cleansed their, their flesh. It never cleansed their souls from sin. It only cleansed them from ceremonial defilement. But in contrast, the blood of Christ is far more powerful. And the author Hebrews makes this point in Hebrews 9:13 to 14. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, it's talking about our passage today, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, your soul, your spirit from dead works to serve the living God. See, the blood of Christ doesn't just cleanse the body, it cleanses the soul. It cleanses our whole being. It cleanses our conscience of the guiltiness that we all are under the law, under, God's, under the, the law of God. And many of us, many people foolishly strive to live a righteous life thinking that you could earn your way, but these are dead works. It is only through the washing of the blood of Christ that we are washed clean. It is all of grace, freely given, so that simply you and I need to receive and apply the blood of Christ is available to all who are sinners, who wish to be cleansed and forgiven. And when you have received Jesus Christ, you have the hope of knowing that your sins are washed. And you, are, you will have them removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And when God, you stand before God, he will not see your sin because he has declared you right before him because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf but only if you obey and receive Christ for salvation by faith. To not receive Christ, if you've not received Christ in your life, if you've not consciously, intentionally, (coughs) in your own heart, (coughs) expressed to God in faith your desire to receive Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins, if you've not done that, you are still dead in your sins. So the my invitation to you today is that if you have not yet believed in Jesus, that believe in Christ. For if you do not, when you die, you will be cut off from God forever. So I'll leave you with three questions just for your thoughts and discussion, reflection. Have you received and believed in Christ for your salvation? It's the first question, the most important question of all. And then secondly, while though our sins are we are we are have our sins forgiven, we still as we live in this world we have a sin nature still, a sin nature that still manifests in sin on a uh, it, uh, on a regular basis. And we the God provided uh, us to be forgiven through the confession of our sins. In First John one nine. Is there some sin in your life that you need to confess the Lord? And then thirdly, I hope uh, this question. Hopefully, how are you finding hope in Christ? as you sojourn in this world of sin and death. I know many of us, uh, uh, as we were mourning, uh, we have opportunities to think about God's truths. And it's it's not only is it for you, but as you, I hope you have opportunities to share with others how God's truth is ministering to you. And if you can share with others, they too will find hope and encouragement. And uh, we can encourage one another as we sojourn here on this world. this world of sin and death but not a world where there is without hope for God has sent us his son to purify us and to give us hope from the judgment of sin and death let's pray Father in heaven thank you Lord for your word and for this time to study this law of the red heifer and God we pray that you would uh, help us to see this connection to Jesus Christ Lord may these thoughts be uh, providing hope for us in the, as we walk in this world of sin and death, even as your ordinance provided hope for Israel as they wandered in the wilderness where they experienced death and sin as well. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice, who cleanses us forever. From a conscience of dead works to a life of living for you and you alone. Until you call us home, Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you. In Jesus' name we pray.